and welcome to Work Interrupted, a new podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'll be talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm really pleased to welcome Julian Bagini, writer, philosopher and author of more than 20 books about philosophy for a general audience. They include How the World Thinks, A Short History of Truth, Freedom Regained and The Ego Trick. Quite big subjects in other words. He's a co-founder of The Philosopher's Magazine and he also works with businesses on corporate ethics. I read a piece he wrote about getting what was probably coronavirus before lockdown and how that made him reconsider his work life and wanted to find out more. In this conversation, he talks about food, fear of missing out, freelance life, and why he thinks he's now unemployable. You wrote a piece about having what was probably COVID-19 back in February. And then when you were recovering, everyone else went into lockdown. How has lockdown been for you? Well, I'm one of those people for whom it's been embarrassingly fine, you know, and I think I I speak to a lot of people who have this almost guilt. It's like a version of survivor's guilt. Um, You know, my work isn't affected by it. It has been affected, but not negatively. It's just been disrupted. Um, I spend a lot of time working from home anyway. That's how I normally work. Um, I got my illness out of the way, (laughs) although, of course, not being sure it's COVID, I can't be sure I couldn't get it again. And, you know, I'm also lucky enough to have a garden and and no close friends or family been affected. So it's a very strange situation to be in, in that actually it's very comfortable. In some ways, it's a bit of a relief not to have the normal amount of travel that I need to do uh, for events and the like. And it's perhaps made me really realise that I (laughs) didn't don't need as much as I thought I needed in terms of stimulation and other things going on. It's very interesting, isn't it? I, it? It feels very similar for me. I don't. I followed the deputy chief of medical officer's advice to move in with my boyfriend for lockdown. <laughs> so I'm not in my flat in London, which doesn't have a garden. Remember, there's a shared communal space, and of course, I work from home all the time, anyway, or most of the time. So I, I, I agree with you. And I'm, I'm, and my boyfriend's house has a garden, and it's um, in the countryside. So, um, you know, it feels like a. a perfectly pleasant experience in all kinds of ways but surreal to have this terrible backdrop of what we're all living through and I and I think you're absolutely right about calling it a kind of survivor's guilt I think this is a story it's a multi-layered story but for some people they're going through something that feels really 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 tough and for some of us it feels as though we're spectating on a tragedy and that creates a kind of weird combination I think in terms of both what we're going through and in terms of what the legacy is likely to be. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, particularly early on in, in the beginning of lockdown, you know, going for the daily walk, it just felt so strange. This sort of, it really struck you just how much society had been disrupted. And of course, you know, you are aware of how difficult this is, mainly in terms of people's livelihoods, to be honest, rather than health, because the health stories you don't hear so much about. But, you know, if people like myself who live in cities, we have our local shops, our local cafes, our local uh, restaurants that we're fond of and we support, and we just see them shut down. We wonder how the hell they're getting on. And, you know, we have some contact with them and we find out. And we hear mixed things. You know, one of the nice things is, is it's been really quite heartening 
how many people I have spoken to have said that they felt touched by how much you know their customers have rallied around to support them when they've moved to some kind of delivery or pickup alternative. But at the same time, you know, that's a self-selecting sample. I'm hearing from the people doing well. Other places have just shut their doors and just, you know, aren't seeing anybody. And you wonder how these people are going to survive. And, you know, it's more than just earning a living. For a lot of the self-employed, it's a tough life for a lot of businesses anyway. And I always feel sorry to see any small business close, which unfortunately a lot of them do even in the best of times. You know, it's very hard to make a go of a small business. But a lot of the time now you're seeing people who have worked really hard, built up. It's kind of a dream for them to have the business they're doing. And through no fault of their own, through sheer bad luck, this has come along and could potentially ruin them. You know, it's very, very tough. I agree. I I think that's going to be one of the biggest tragedies that emerges from this whole thing. And I think it's obvious to cafes and restaurants and actually a lot of people in the arts that they are very seriously at risk of being put out of business, quite possibly permanently. But I think many people aren't yet aware of the scale of the tragedy and of the unemployment that we're likely to face. Yeah. But the, without getting uh, too grim too early on in our conversation, <laughs> before we both top ourselves, um, what have you actually missed from so-called normal life? Yeah, it's a very good question because very little. I mean, to be honest with you, there are certain things which if I thought I could never do them again, I might start to panic about. But things like going to cinema, theatre, concerts, restaurants, things like that, actually, I'm absolutely fine not to be doing them for the moment the thing I missed most in the early days was actually getting out into the countryside uh, just going for nice walks uh, which but you've been able to do that now for, for some mm. time so that sort of come back um, I haven't even missed I have to confess this that I haven't missed seeing people <laughs> either I've been, <laughs> I'm in touch with the people I'm closest to so you know it'd be nice to see them don't get me wrong but it's not a real sort of wrench for me and a lot of other people do feel very differently. I think perhaps it must make it... I'm not a parent, and maybe if you're a parent or a grandparent, it does make a big difference. Um, more than one person has said, in answer to the question, what are you most looking forward to, is be able to hold my grandchild or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but I think it's really that. It's the access to the outdoors. And in, in a sense, it's quite remarkable. I mean, I would like to think... Most of us, I think, like to think we're reasonably self-aware people. But recognising how much of what, you know, I just took for granted as part of a good varied life is still good. I don't don't do it, get me wrong. I haven't decided I don't like it after all. But just isn't at all necessary. It's, it's quite striking, really. Yeah, I, I feel the same. It's interesting. I was reading something um, about uh, the whole um, test, the introvert-extrovert test. I can't remember what it's called now. And how it's not kind of stuck in aspic and how recruiters behave as if it is and I always used to think of myself as quite an extreme extrovert and my natural mode is to be out most nights well obviously I haven't been out for two months now and it's fine (laughs) and I don't know how I found the time to do that before I talk to a lot of people on the phone I do a lot of Skype calls and so on but um, I do think that many of us will realize that part of um, kind of infrastructure of our daily lives wasn't necessary and in many ways not doing all these social things having the perfect it's a perfect excuse not to do all these social skills social things because nobody's allowed to and it will raise interesting questions when 
if, assuming at some point we are allowed to do them again, you know, how you can get out of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that you can no longer say we're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but, also, but also how we can sort of choose to manage social niceties and um and politeness actually it's not just niceties it's kind of manners and actually what we want to do and i think that's quite interesting i mean a couple of things that you said there i found interesting first of all there is this you know fomo phenomenon people talk about fear of missing out which you know i think is very real when when you're aware that things are going on and uh, should i be going to it am i missing something by not doing it and you know, the, this sort of situation takes that away. There's nothing going on. You're nothing you're missing out of. And in, I think that kind of does show just how powerful this FOMO thing is, that so many of us are realising that if it take away the fear of missing out, and actually there are lots of things you're happy to do without. But the first thing you said, actually, about, you know, introversion and extroversion and about how these things aren't set in stones. I mean, I think people are finding things out about themselves that they didn't know about themselves. Some pleasant, some unpleasant and I think one is about that adaptability I think a lot of people assume that they are a certain way and then they realize actually it's just the way they've adapted to their lifestyle I heard some interview on the radio I think with somebody who who worked at a nightclub or something he was convinced they were out you know a super extrovert fun-loving person and realized what they they say they realized in lockdown that that wasn't true at all. They actually preferred being away from stuff and being quite quiet. I mean, I think there's we've got to be a bit careful, though, in the sense that we don't want to kind of jump to the false conclusion that the, the person we find ourselves being in lockdown is the real us, you know, which is different to the one we were before. I think it's rather that there are many different sides to the real you. And that it very much depends on circumstances, which side comes to the fore, which side uh, you show most and which side you sort of cultivate more. And I think it's very useful to learn about our, the range of our possibilities yes. and sort of the relative uh, importance of those different aspects of ourselves. But, you know, how, how we are in lockdown isn't necessarily a guide to how <laughs> we would ideally be in all situations. Absolutely right. And fascinating and interesting as well in relation to this whole idea of being authentic it's been one of the buzzwords both in politics where we know it's a complete lie and um but also in terms of the workplace that everybody now is meant to bring their whole self to work that obviously mm. if everybody did bring their whole self to work then the whole world of work would completely collapse tomorrow um well can I just pick up on that actually because I think that's really interesting I, I can't I like you I, I really hate that phrase and I was doing some uh, some work recently for for an organisation which was looking at its its values, and that's one of the things they said in their company statement. And I said, "Are you sure you want to ask this of people?" I mean, there are lots of people who would very much like to leave parts of their selves at home, and it's very important for them. And and do you really think that those people are not going to be the best workers? I mean, they might be some of the best workers, actually. The people who literally bring everything in might be a pain in the neck because, you know, they're burdening everyone with their domestic problems and so forth. And But it, but it's, it's kind of, as you say, it's just a, a myth around this authenticity. It's a very powerful idea people have that there is something which is the authentic self, which is at the core of your being, which is, you know, never changes. And in a way, it's weird because... We've come to embrace the idea of fluidity in so many ways, particularly around sexuality, and yet they still seem to want to hold on to this idea of the the ever-present core, which never changes. I find that interesting. 
Absolutely. And also, as you say, it raises huge issues about things that we had assumed were set in stone about how we run a society and how we run workplaces. And we discovered overnight that businesses could suddenly have their entire workforce working from home um, in, in a way that they have always assumed would take years if they wanted it to happen. We discovered that you could build entire hospitals in a few days when generally things in the public sector take years and years to implement. So I think an awful lot of things that have been set in stone have changed. But I suppose one of the key questions will be whether that's a mindset shift that we will bring as we emerge, if we emerge from this thing or not. I mean, what do you think about, you know, we've had sort of set views about where the world is going and there can be quite a lot strong sense of sort of destiny and fatalism about that. Um, do you have any thoughts on that at this point? Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting question because in a strange way, it's an event which we fundamentally can't control at the most basic level has kind of given us a big wake-up call as to how much agency we actually have. Do you see what I mean? So it's sort of like, and I, I think that that is true. So you're right. There are all sorts of things we said we couldn't do. I mean, again, we want to be a bit careful here. I mean, we haven't proved we could build a hospital which is fit for purpose in the long run in, in no. four weeks. We, we've, we've shown we can build some temporary thing yeah. which will do the job in, in a hangar. Um, and also, you know, people are also noticing the, the changes in air quality, which are really quite striking, actually, I and mean, extraordinary. Uh, some of the satellite images and uh, measures are there. So will that, will that mindset continue? It's very difficult. And I think that I've, I, early on, I tried to kind of realise that I'm not to make too many predictions about this. I think one of the problems is that, although you said that what we're learning is that lots of things we just assume to be the case and have their own kind of you know momentum we can actually change but then actually people transfer that way of thinking about what's happening now and kind of imagine that because we've had this wake-up call certain things are going to inevitably follow from it afterwards yeah that oh we've changed we're not going to go back blah 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 i think in in each case the, the the real lesson is that we have choice but if we don't make those choices things don't happen so if there are things we've learned in this situation, which we want to carry forward, we, it will only happen because of effort and because people decide that's what they want to do. It won't happen automatically. So I think if we do want things to change, as you say, there will be big fights to be had. Um, but before we go incredibly philosophical, I want to ask you some more <laughs> practical, concrete things about your own career. Um, so, for example, when you go to a party, or at least in the old universe, when you could go to a party, and people ask you what you do, do you say philosopher? Oh, that's a good question. I, I tend to say writer, but then I'm very aware that if I don't then say what I write about, it's kind of meaningless. So I, I tend to say I'm a writer yeah, about around philosophy, about philosophy. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and you were the first in your uh, family to go to university. Um and you chose philosophy, which is, you know, quite a double whammy. But <laughs> what what made you choose to read philosophy? Well, I mean, I think I sort of blundered into it rather blindly. I mean, I think, you know, as, as a teenager at school, I just got interested in the, the big questions. So, you know, for my A-levels, I did English literature, religious studies and politics, which, you know, was actually not recommended as a high-powered trio of A-levels if you wanted to get on in the life but I just wanted to do the things that most interested me and all of those 
you know, subjects did deal with aspects of the, the big questions. And so philosophy looked like, you know, you assume it's the subject which deals with those. Um, and originally applied to do English literature and philosophy. Yeah. What you find out at university, if you go into it naively as I did, is that, you know, academic philosophy is uh, not quite what you'd imagine. It does deal with those questions, but it deals with them in a, in a very particular way. And it also deals with lots of things like formal logic, which have no obvious application to real life at all. But actually, you know, generally speaking, I did find it rewarded. I actually dropped the English after a year or so because it was so dreary at university compared to how it was at school. Whereas the philosophy department, five people, a struggling department on paper, a small struggling department, but five people who just all had that overused word, a passion for their subject, and were different personalities. And, you know, they brought the subject alive for me, so I'm very grateful to them. And at what point did you decide this was going to be your life's work? <laughs> well, I mean, it was never really a decision like that. I mean, I kind of, I think I was quite blessed. You said I was the first person to go to university for my family, which is true. And I think what that did is it liberates me from any kind of pressure and expectation. So I could literally just think, what do I do next? What's the next thing I do? And just continue in that way. So I did my undergraduate degree. I didn't think I was going to do anything postgraduate until quite late when I kind of thought, actually, I've, I'm about to finish and I've only just got going. So I had a couple of years out and then went and did the graduate work. But again, not with a plan to make it a career. I was really quite surprised in a very naive way to discover that most of my peers who were doing masters and PhDs definitely did want to have an academic career. And I was the odd one out who hadn't even thought about it. So it was just one thing leading to another, really. And then after the PhD, I co-founded the Philosopher's Magazine, a small philosophy magazine. And I was able from that sort of platform, if you like, to sort of build my other freelance work and write books. And I've just been delighted to find that I could keep it going, you know, uh, which just couldn't be taken for granted. You know, in the early days when I started out along this path, I was always quite aware that there's no guarantees uh, (laughs) that because someone's given you a book contract today, you're going to have one in two years, let alone five or ten. So no master plan there, really. It's just I've been lucky that I've followed my nose and my nose hasn't led me straight into a brick wall. Well, I think to, frankly, to have made your living predominantly as a writer for this long is uh, something that practically deserves a, a gold medal because, as we all know, it's increasingly challenging. In fact, I just reviewed a memoir by Michelle Roberts about having her no- most recent novel rejected and about you know facing severe financial hardship mm. and, uh, and a sense of your identity being rocked. And I think that happens to so many writers. So it is a big deal, whether you stumbled into it or not. Yeah. It is a big deal. Um, I had a look at the Philosopher's Magazine and I saw that in the current issue, you've got uh, pieces on, for example, the ethics of social distancing, um, which, of course, uh, reminds us of how every aspect of daily life has a philosophical or ethical dimension. Do you think this pandemic has stimulated more people to think about the ethics of daily life without necessarily going into the comings and goings of a certain uh, <laughs> over the past yeah. few days. Nicely done. I mean, I should say, by the way, that I haven't edited the magazine since 2010. I, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. But yes, it, it, the, the kind of things it covers are still indicative, absolutely. Um, yes, I think the thing is that there's, you, you don't have to go very far to see people engaging in what are 
essentially philosophical issues, but you know they don't do that in a self-consciously thinking of it as philosophy, or with reference to philosophical texts or even particular methods. Um, yes, at the moment it is bringing to the fore various things around you know, fundamental values. Really, you know, what kind of society do we want? What kind of lifestyle do we want? What does it really uh, mean to, to flourish? And these are philosophical questions. It's a little bit frustrating, perhaps, that despite the fact they're they're there, very clearly out there, um, that most discussions aren't really delving into the philosophy behind it. We're still caught up in the daily news cycle a lot. Uh, being led by events, and as you suggest, you know, debating the rights and wrongs of specific individuals, specific actions, and not really sitting back and looking in at the the broader picture. Um, that's something I've always hoped philosophy could do more as part of the you know, general conversation of society. But it's it's very hard to find room for it. You know, very hard to find room for it. I mean, one reason in journalism, I mean, you know this yourself, having worked in it for many years, that. You know, I've done a fair number of like comment pieces over the years, but I'm somewhat hampered because, frankly, the headline, the truthful headline for most pieces I would write would be you know, something like, it's a bit more complicated than that. You know? and, 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 and people want people want this. And so often, again, sometimes I'll be called up by a radio producer who interested in me taking part in a discussion. And it doesn't work out because they're looking for someone to take a diametrically opposite position if got lined up. And this is a frustration we've all had for years and years. Um, but it's it's very still very very hard to shake, and this is one of the things where the move online isn't isn't helping, because even the most serious newspapers and magazines are still being, I think, somewhat infected by you know the clickbait culture. So I mean, there's one magazine I, I write for, and quite a lot online as well as in 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 the, in the magazine itself, and it's a great magazine. The context's fantastic. But, you know, still, I, I sometimes think to myself, you know, did you really have to give it that headline? <laughs> and the answer is uh, yes, because if we don't, people don't read it. You know, this is a really, really difficult. This is really difficult. If you want society to have mature, measured debates and yet everything is being driven by these things. And there's no point just lamenting the stupidity of people because we kind of all f- fall for it, too. I mean, it'd be interesting if someone could track my clicks over a year. I'd probably be quite very disappointed or shocked to see how often the thing I click on has the more provocative title and how many times my mouse just sort of goes over something which is a bit more measured. I would hope yeah. that wasn't the case, but knowing human nature and knowing that I am a human, I suspect it is the case. Well, I suppose we as human animals have adapted to a changing culture which the internet absolutely transformed it's transformed and partly killed journalism and very sadly it looks as though the economics of the pandemic are going to kill even more of journalism and therefore the uh, the need to come up with more clickbaity headlines is then increased one of the things you have to learn if you're freelance is to be adaptable flexible resourceful also to sell yourself which is my least mm. favorite part of the whole package oh, oh, me too. I hate that. Yeah. Um, but and increasingly these are skills that people are going to need in the changed workplace and as we've said many people will tragically lose their jobs and quite a few will probably feel semi-forced into freelancing for lack of alternative options do you think you can teach people to be adaptable and flexible and resilient and all these things or do you think these are things 
you can only learn by through experience well, that's a good question I'm not entirely sure I'm not going to sort of like say I definitely know one way or the other but I think people can learn things I mean part of many things about practical skills I think sometimes there's too much emphasis on this ideas of resilience and whatever as though they're fundamentally about character or personality and, and self-development actually a lot of the time the difference which enables somebody to be adaptable and flexible as opposed to someone who can't, is that they have become aware of something they can do, <laughs> which they didn't know they could do, right? So, I mean, to give a simple example, you know, two people might be sitting there idly dreaming about, you know, oh, I'd quite like to set up my own dot, dot, dot. Well, if one of them is put in touch with a, a you know, perhaps government-funded small business advisor who's able to provide a grant, and one of them isn't, guess mm-hmm. who's going to be more adaptable and more yeah. flexible? Yeah. So I think that giving people practical help is actually really probably the most important thing and then you know whether they not then have the personality to make the most of that we'll, we'll, we'll just we'll, we'll just we'll just see mm. have you ever had a proper job have I ever had a proper job that's a good <laughs> question now I've never had I'm I'm pleased with this because this is not because I've had any kind of trust fund or anything I can assure you <laughs> I've never had a full-time permanent job I had full I worked full-time as an English teacher between my first degree and my postgraduate degree and ever since then, it's been a hodgepodge of part-time jobs, temporary jobs, hourly jobs, and freelance jobs, which I'm sort of, I'm, I don't know, I, I, I like that. I, I say I'm proud of it, that's a bit too strong, but I, I, I like that. <laughs> um, what, what do you, I mean, you know, with, with a regular job, obviously you get the great thing, a regular paycheck, but you also get a boss, which is, you know, not ideal. Yeah. Um, what do you feel have you missed out on if anything through not having permanent employment I, um, that's a very good question I think very little in terms of what I perceive as positives because you know, the regular paycheck and all of that years ago you always used to say you know it's a great life but of course you're more vulnerable and etc and I, I, I changed my mind um, several years ago partly through something that um, Taleb said. I'm not a big fan of his work in general, but he pointed out that, you know, in a, in a modern economy, if you're a freelance worker with more than one source of income, more than one client, you're, you're actually a lot more secure than someone who relies on all their pay from one employer. So I, I think that it's not even the case that life is yeah. more precarious. It's less predictable in the short to medium term, but it's, it's probably more secure in the long term. I think perhaps in a way, what you miss out on not having a, a proper job is perhaps something to do with, with people skills, mm. actually. It's the fact that you, you have to deal every day with people who you may not particularly like, who you may not have uh, get along with, but you have to sort of find ways of communicating, of etc., etc. And if you've been freelance for a very long time, maybe you don't develop those skills as much and maybe you become a bit more arrogant, set in your ways, less tolerant of other people, things like that. Now I'm saying that list, I'm thinking, hmm, yeah, that's possibly true in my case. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does kind of ruin you for having a boss, I have to say. I, the thought of every time I think, oh, you know, do I want to be freelance anymore, which I don't very often because I like being freelance, but 
I, the thought of having a boss, mm. you know, doesn't feel good. But uh, I think it, I think when you've been used to freedom, I think relinquishing freedom is is tough. But of course, as a freelancer, you you end up having lots of little bosses, or rather, not little bosses, but lots of different bosses for different projects or whatever. So I suppose you do have to manage those relationships, don't you? You, you do, and in a sense, you've got more people you have to please than you yes, do. Exactly. There's more people you have to please, so that that that, that is true. Um, and also, you know, the freedom can be overstated. I mean, you have to do what you can do. It's not like you can just pick and choose your, your projects. You know, it'd be great, it'd be fantastic. Yeah. Today I'm going to write a column for The Guardian. No, I mean, yes, you know, I, I, I send in my pitch to The Guardian and, you know, I write for them from time to time. But increasingly, as they have less money for freelancers, um, the answer is either no or there isn't an answer at all. You've got more people to please in that sense. As you say, you've got to be your own PR person in a way. Mm. You've got to, I really can't stand that, build your personal brand. All these things mm. that make me cringe. But I think that overall, yeah, I, 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 I think I'm probably properly unemployable now. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, I, have, I do have, I do now have a, like a small part-time role with the Law Institute of Philosophy. But, you know, I'm working from home all the time it's it's not a big organization i'm so it it, it's it feels like another part of the self-employed portfolio rather than being a a a job in any conventional sense of the word have you ever got really sick of a being a philosopher i mean pursuing philosophy as your work and b freelance life and thought right enough i want to do something else yeah well i constantly get sick of philosophy and and i think that's kind of normal in the sense that um simon glendinning who's a very sort of thoughtful uh, philosopher wrote something many years ago which really sort of stuck with me he said if you're a philosopher and you're not worried by the possibility all your words could be so much spinning in the wind then you're not taking yourself uh, in the right spirit you know the possibility that, that what you're saying is just empty or nonsense is, is always there. And also, you know, a lot, a lot of philosophy does end up getting, I think, stuck on what are not the core issues. Uh, debate goes down a certain road and people keep down that road and they should have backtracked years ago and gone down a different one. And also, you know, there's, there is more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in the discipline of philosophy. And, you know, we only have one life, so I'm interested in other things. So I certainly, uh, and I, but I think what's happened there is I've simply become less of a pure philosopher. So the kind of things I've been doing in, in recent years, you know, there's always philosophy there, but other things too, such as the, the book I did on food, for example, um, you know, it's about philosophy and food, but, you know, it's not straightforward, pure philosophy. So and I think the point is you get dragged back to these things. You know, I have the philosophical temperament. I'm not going to go very long without my attention being drawn to what is, if you like, the philosophical dimension of a problem. In terms of freelance, no. I think I, I, my daydream, my idle daydream is not to stop being a, a, a freelancer. It's to, and this is something that kind of I was thinking a lot when I was hospitalised earlier, it's about doing less with more focus. Um, you know, as a freelancer, you, you, you have to juggle so many balls and it's very difficult not to take on too much, which sounds like it's great. You know, it sounds like one of those sort of complaints you shouldn't have. Oh, oh I'm too busy. I've got too much work. Well, lucky you when people don't have enough. But, you know, taking on too much is always one of the big risks. And I, I would like to be able to, to do less. 
and I'd like to be able to sort of do a few more things without knowing whether or not they're going to lead to any kind of financial reward. I do always do a certain amount of that anyway, but mm. great luxury would be, you know, pursue a project for six months or 12 months. And if it results in a book or something great, and if not, not, but I mean, that's, that's greedy, isn't it? I mean, how many people get that opportunity? Well, it's, it, it's interesting. And, and in terms of the kind of doing less, I think in the, the very interesting piece you wrote about that, uh, you talk about spending hours on trains to talk to you know quite small audiences, as happens to all of us who are sometimes asked to talk to people. But the thing is, you don't know in advance, or at least you've already committed yourself by the time you discover it's going to be a small audience. Last year, I went up to Glasgow for um, a, a book festival and had probably the smallest audience I've ever had at any event. Mm. And it was like a day on a train there and a day on the train back because I'd broken my foot and uh, and it was, you know, the only way I could get there, but also I wouldn't really approve of flying that distance. And um, and I have to say, I thought, well, that's two days, basically completely wasted. But um, but one has to make these decisions with it, with incomplete information and also it's a step of faith because you don't know how it's going to work out. So that's difficult to juggle, isn't it? Oh, well, it is. Also, I, I think that I, I have a great sense of privilege. If someone asks me to give a talk, I think, you know, that's that's lovely. It's really nice. They want me to mm. go and give a talk, and um, they don't owe me that, you know. And I, I like to be able to say yes to people. It seems almost rude not to. And it's numbers and numbers don't bother me as such, you know. I mean, it, the size of a group you speak to isn't the, the measure of how important is but but the fact of the matter is you do have you you have to do a certain amount of you know analysis of like a, a cost efficiency and time and motion studies of your own benefit and it is true nice though it is to go and have a talk to 12 very nice people in a room if it is two days of your time you know can you afford that no you your phd i think was on the philosophy of personal identity obviously for many people work is a core part of their identity would you say it's a core part of yours um well that's a good good question i think obviously it it probably is in some way but is it a core part i don't know i've always been fairly sanguine about the idea that you know, there might come a point where i can't do what i do anymore and i'd have to do something else i'm also quite sanguine about the idea that to the extent that you have any kind of profile at all that's also extremely sort of like fleeting um, I remember reading quite a long time ago, it must have been, might have been Joan Bakewell's autobiography, actually. Um, such a, talent, a talented broadcaster, a very smart and lovely woman. I don't know if you know Joan. Yes, I, I've met yeah. She had, I read her autobiography, actually. Yeah. I think she, I read it. she had a period, she was just in the wilderness. She couldn't even get a conversation with a TV producer, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, you know, if someone like Joan Bakewell, who, uh, you know, at her peak, in her first peak, shall I say, was such a major figure. If even she can sort of find that, you know, people aren't returning her calls, then someone like myself could certainly um, not guarantee that wouldn't happen. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't think I'd feel that threat to my identity if if I go to my backup job, which I thought before this crisis was a waiter. Actually, um, it's kind of it's kind of in the family. Um, mm. But um, I don't know if the hospitality industry is going to recover enough. You know, I kind of—I didn't think I'd see that as a real threat to my identity. You know, uh, and mm. I feel like you know, do you know who I am? Kind of thing. You know, I, I didn't mm. used to wait tables. You know, I used to write books. I think one has to sort of be a bit more realistic about about that, and to accept the fact that you know, the fact that you may have done certain things and got your name on in print a few times, it it, it can go. So I think I. I I hope 
and I think that my identity isn't so much tied up. The way it is tied up, I guess, is simply this, that I have this philosophical temperament. I like to work things out. I can't imagine not writing ever because it's through writing that I often get clearer about things for my own benefit. So I think I'd probably always be doing some writing. I'd simply be sending them off and getting rejection letters. Um, <laughs> but in that sense, the identity I have as someone who is, you know, questioning, exploring and trying to work things out wouldn't be threatened by the fact that things weren't, weren't published. Very interesting. I must say, when, when I lost my job a few years ago, I was really devastated. Mm. I mean, so devastated that I wrote a book about it. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I, and I wonder what, as a philosopher, what advice you would give to someone who discovered that work was such a core part of their identity and then lost that work, as many unfortunately will in the weeks and months to follow. Yeah, well, I think it's not just about work, to be honest with you. I think that we have a tendency to see ourselves through certain lens, through certain identities that we may have. Um, It's not just work. Parenthood can be one, uh, particularly, I think, for for women at the time when women didn't have the opportunities to work as much. Being the mother would be the be-all and end-all of their identity, and then they often really struggled when their kids left home and of course now as is often the case uh, rather than the liberation from it now a lot of women both have <laughs> that sense of of uh, being important to identity and the work thing as well mm. um so i i think the real thing is not specific to work really it's to recognize the fact that uh, we do many things none of the things we do completely defines us and so therefore if there's if we if there's something we do which we can no longer do in the future you know, that doesn't strip us of who we essentially are. And in a way, I think that rather than see our, if we want to have some sense, a firm, secure sense of who we are, rather than attach it to some kind of identity, I think we should identify it perhaps more with with, with core values, actually. You know, what what really matters to you? What are your values? And these these may change over time, of course, as well. So they're not necessarily fixed. But if you know what your values are and you know what you really want to be doing, then I think that gives you a little bit more stability in in changeable times. And I think actually one reason why, I'm not saying this is the case for you, one reason why losing a massive source of identity like a job can be such a shake-up is that it sort of forces you to confront the fact that you've been so focused on what you've been doing in a way you you, you don't necessarily know what your your, your values are um, and that you're, you're you're not sure what you want to do now you know because you don't you don't have that you don't have a real deep-rooted sense of, of, of what it is that's sort of your guiding star so yeah values I think I think people don't think enough about values in general really um, yeah. yeah I think that's very interesting but the, 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 there's a kind of version of that which is a, a lot of um younger people millennials to use the phrase that lots of people don't really like um the word have absorbed is the sense that they have to have a burning sense of purpose in their work mm. it has to be their passion they have to know their why uh, to quote simon sinek now that's all lovely but frankly at a time of very high unemployment that's going to be impossible for a lot of people and Again, I wonder what advice you would give to people about that, because we can't all do work that feels meaningful and that we're passionate about. You know, we've oh, got to pay yeah. our bills as well. No, I think that's nonsense. And I think it's worse than I think it's actually pernicious nonsense in lots mm-hmm. of ways. I once was at a school 
uh, and they were part of a day of talks. And one person gave a talk which was a little intermediate talk in which they were they were encouraging all these tunes to kind of like really focus in on and identify what their passion was and to hold on to that and blah, blah. And I just thought, actually, at the risk of being rude when I came to speak, <laughs> just sort of said, for the sake of anyone in this room who doesn't know what their passion is and feel they have one, don't worry, there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> you know, it may be there'll never be one overriding thing. It may be you haven't found it yet. It may change, you know. So I think telling people they must follow their I know loads of people who have gone through their whole lives and would say they've never, ever found a single thing which counts as their passion. <laughs> but I think if you go back to the values things, they, they, they know what they value. They know, for example, they value... Um, yeah, maybe, maybe what they value is is the is the quiet life. They value the idea that they can go to work, earn a living, and go home and get on with it. You know, which is absolutely fine. You know, and a lot of work is like that. Let's face it. And this doesn't mean the work's unpleasant at all. It just has its place. I know a lot of people who have gone from more sort of demanding work, if you like, to or shop work even, or something more, you know, considered more basic, and have found it great because they just do the work and go home. Um, but you know, it. it, it Again, if you if you know what your your values are, then you know you can just follow your your way through life, and you you have to accept the fact you do have to accept the fact that things may not go entirely all your own way. Um, it also goes back to the following your passion thing. I think sometimes people are given the impression that if only you follow your passion with all your heart and all your soul, all earthly rewards will sort of come to you, and and, and of course they won't. Uh, some of the most admirable people. I know are people who are creative people who have managed to go their whole lives sort of pursuing their art, whatever it is, their music, their, their art, their literature, their poetry, without ever being able to make a living from it. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that's great. They haven't given up on what's most important to their lives. It's not the same as their career. So, yeah, I, I would say just ditch all that. <laughs> if you're lucky, if you do have a singular passion, and it's also a singular passion that in that could, can be allied to something which can earn you a living then fantastic and you're very lucky and do do that don't go away and do something else but if you don't um you shouldn't feel there's anything wrong with you and it shouldn't stop you pursuing valued action in in, in the jargon yeah i couldn't agree more and and i'm very interested to hear that you're you're doing work with businesses about their values because as we no, there are lots and lots of buzzwords in businesses about, you know, everybody's transparent, everybody cares, everybody wants to do good to the planet, they're all sustainable, they're all environmental, yeah. um, they all have a strong sense of, you know, corporate social responsibility. How do you cut through the crap when you mm. go into a business environment? Yeah, no, good, 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 good question. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm kind of seeing myself here as it's a, it's a corrective because I think that they say, first of all, there's quite a lot of spin and buzzwords which are quite empty. And then secondly, there are quite a lot of, you know, schemes and checklists and all these kind of things that people can tick off to sort of prove their their virtue. I think what's missing here, and I think the dimension people, if they're really serious, you ought to think about an organisation the way you think about an individual person. For an individual person, the test of their goodness, if you like, is not ask them what moral code they sign up to or subscribe to. It's, it's, it's their character in that so. kind of old-fashioned Aristotle sense. Yeah. And, and, and I think that organisations, some of them have a good corporate character. They have an ethos. They have a way of doing things. And everyone kind of gets it. You know, leadership models it. But everyone gets it. I think what the interesting thing in the crisis was, we just had, was it all happened very suddenly. 
And I don't think anybody had a kind of piece of paper they could refer to, which told them what is the right thing to do in this event. And you saw some organisations of tremendous ethical character did the right thing right from the start. You know, they just knew it was the right thing to do. We've got a, a wonderful sort of small chain of, of coffee shops in the southwest, about 21 shops. And, you know, they had to shut and all that stuff. And right from the beginning, you know, the biggest pay cuts came from the top. Simple as that. They tried to protect their lower things. And it came instantly. You know, no one had to tell them off for it. Other organisations came in, did some crass things, treated people very badly, got told off for it, and often changed their minds afterwards. But you could see it's because the fundamental character wasn't there. It was like they 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 only, they only did the right thing when they had set aside time to think about their corporate social responsibility. The rest of the time, they were just you know chasing the bottom line. So it's it's developing character in the organisation, and that's a difficult thing to do. It's not a straightforward thing to do. It's some people might think it's a slightly fuzzy thing to do, and so I think a lot of people aren't interested in doing it. Really, it's just it's it's too much like hard work. It's not measurable. It's not quantifiable. Um, and therefore people run away from it. But I, I genuinely think that, that the best organisations display that character. And do you, I mean, I think that's fascinating. And I, for example, was very shocked by uh, getting an email from, various emails from the National Trust. And um, I contacted them to say, could I please freeze my membership because A, I'm not allowed to go outside and B, my income has dropped. Mm. Um, and their website said, we won't be covering, uh, we won't be, freezing memberships because we'll, we'll be providing lots of content and I thought I can do content thanks very much but what I can't do is stay homes and, and um, just the sheer hubris of assuming yeah. that everybody would want to carry on paying for something they weren't getting without even offering them the option to freeze their membership um, I found the arrogance of that breathtaking no, and, I find that interesting as well. And what's interesting there is you're talking about the National Trust, right? And I'm a member too. And the National Trust, you know, does does great things. But again, it's often actually organisations which um, have a, a very strong sense of social purpose can actually become the most complacent about their yeah. ethics because they think yeah. well, we're, we're the National Trust. We're, we're the right. custodians of the, of the nation. We can't do any wrong. Um, mm -hmm. I knew trade unions, for example. I once knew someone who worked for the trade unions terrible environment to work in i'm not saying all trade unions are like this but at the time this particular union awful place to work you know and and that's because the leadership they're so convinced they're on the side of the workers of course we are and you've got these huge benefits so it's almost like they don't have to pay attention anymore to mm. how they're actually acting because of course we're always on the side of the angels and i think that's a that's a really important message actually you know the moment you start assuming you're on the side of the angels that's where all sorts of horrible things um emerge because you, you take your uh, eye yeah. off the ball absolutely right i think that applies to a lot of the charity sector as well you know mm. a lot of it's kind of nest of vipers and they they always used to say never work for a left-wing newspaper they're the ones who fire you just before christmas <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. right one much nicer yes yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um we have noticed a bit more about what work matters at a time like this um supermarket workers delivery drivers refuse collectors care workers everybody's saying oh we now know how important these people are though they're still technically classified as low skilled even though they're key workers and pay and conditions are largely pretty bad do you think i mean it goes back to your earlier point really about the choice we make about whether we will be a bit better as a society or not but can you think of 
a way that we might entrench some of these perceptions about the work that matters beyond higher pay, which obviously we ought to do, but, you know, it's not really up to us. It's up to who we elect. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. It's very difficult to shift this because perceptions of status, particularly of occupations and stuff, it's very sort of deep-rooted in, in, in culture. I'm not sure how quickly it can be changed. And also, you know, like it or not, it's very difficult to disentangle those things from pay. Of course, it should have nothing to do with pay, but, you know, it, it's very difficult for, for not to get out of that um, situation. So I, 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 I totally agree that, you know, we need to low status jobs. We even use the term low status job. Um, that's, there's nothing about the job which tells you it's low status or not. It's all to do with, with how it's perceived, right? Um, classic example about education, this, you know, if you take teacher, school teacher, for example, school teacher is not a low status job, but its status varies enormously in different countries. So I think it's one of the Scandinavian countries with the best you know, records in education. You know, teachers are, are heroes kind of thing. And it's not about pay as such. It's not about pay as such. Um, so I think there has to be, you know, what can you do? I don't really know. I think partly it's about, about respect. And a lot of the respect there, I think, comes from what kind of rights you give people and the dignity with which you you treat them and to give them the capacity for if that is the however you earn your living for that to be to be enough you know uh, i think again an example here we might give with with waiters i talked about being a waiter earlier the status of a waiter in in a, say mediterranean country is very different from the status of a waiter in the united states and it's no coincidence that you don't get big tips in the countries of the highest status. You do get the high tips in America because you are the lowest of the low. You require the tips. You, as it were, you're almost like begging for your, for your pay from the people, not even your boss, from the people you're serving. In a high status culture, it doesn't happen. You've got respect. You're a waiter. That's a perfectly good thing to do. And, and you're respected. Um, so a lot to do is the cultural assumptions, the cultural background. But I do think, you know, when if people aren't, if you know that someone's in a job where they're not able to earn a living, they're not able to secure a living or a proper living, I think that adds to the impression this is low status and perhaps is, is, is the implication shouldn't be there, but that leads to less respect. So treating everyone properly isn't just a matter of a pay, it's also about rights terms and conditions and and what we enable people to do Mm, absolutely right you wrote a lovely piece in the guardian yesterday about babette's feast which is one of my favorite films my my mother was swedish and so i'm always very you know keen on any scandinavian uh film or or work of art and i loved what you said about um savoring food and uh savouring pleasures really and I think that's a lesson that many of us have learned during lockdown I mean I'm a big fan of you know my mother brought me up to have coffee and cake every day which I do (laughs) (laughs) it's one of the high points of my day and I get huge pleasure from glass of wine and crisps most days kettle chips you know my favourite um so I I you know, for me, it's absolutely one of the, it was it's mother's milk to me to have learnt to savour those pleasures, and that's one of the things that really helped me when I've been through tough times. What would you say have been the the key pleasures for you that have become renewed during this period? Yeah, uh, good. I mean, food's definitely been been one of them. You know, I mean, the, the days revolve around meal times much more than ever, and you know, I like I like cooking. I'm not a fancy cook, but I 
think I do good every day food and uh, i made a smoked haddock risotto yesterday you know I was, I, was, I was i was i was very i was i was unreasonably pleased with myself it's not something i normally make it was really really good and and yeah i mean it's nice but it's partly it's also because it's a good food but you know i'm i'm lucky because i've got someone to share it with here and 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 you know the meal times is that coming together and i think that is one of the most difficult things of being by yourself actually i've i've had periods in my life where i've been single and i don't mind being single at all i think it's fine it's good and lots of things are good, but there's something really nice about being able to share your meal with, with someone that you know you have a genuine affection for. Uh, yes. Bond. On, on the other hand, of course, it's also much worse to have to share a meal with someone you can barely speak to than it is to have one by yourself. <laughs> so it's not that <laughs> you know uh, being by yourself is is not as good as being with the, the ideal person, but it's better than being with the wrong one. That's often forgotten. So I think really the, the, a lot of it has been just just about that, and and also just just walks i mean i get out and walk every day and um quite lucky near me there is some sort of green space but often i just walk the streets I live in bristol and you know it's it's, it's I, th- I think a lot of people have reported that they just have a greater attentiveness now they're mm. noticing things they didn't used to notice and that's partly because i think nature's reasserted itself i was walking somewhere the other day and it was a quite built-up area, but there was a really strong kind of, some kind of vegetative perfume, some kind of blossom or something. It seemed so incongruous because I was on what was a, a main road. Um, there's something about the air being clearer. So I think it's that, really. So it does go back to what you said about this, this savouring thing. I do think that we place too much importance on what sometimes people call peak experiences, you know. Um, so it's paying top dollar money to go to the big event, the big concert, to feel part of something, the big holiday, and these things have a place in the good life. Of course, they do. But I do, I genuinely, I do genuinely think the, uh, the 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 core of a good life is a good every day, and it's that ability to appreciate and notice and savor the quotidian things. Um, I think those things bring us that sense of gratitude and being alive on a on a regular basis which is far more nourishing i think than just going for the occasional huge big injection Mm. Mm. and we none of us knows what's going to happen we hope there'll be a vaccine we don't know if there'll be a vaccine we don't know if this will be years or if it will be a year everything's up in the air really if you had one hope for the world of work after this what would it be that is a good question I, 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 to be honest with you I think maybe I'm, I'm just talking the top of my head <laughs> I th- but I do think perhaps um, respect actually I, I do think that too much work done in the modern world does not command respect respect from employers from the people dealing with the people working uh, from peers and so forth I think what we've really learned is that, you know, everyone's, almost everyone is doing something which brings some kind of benefit to people, whether it's a, a nece- an absolute basic necessity like health care or food supply, whether it's giving people the kind of little pleasures that they, they really uh, make life more worth living. And a lot of this work is unglamorous, absolutely it is, and a lot of it is not very well paid. But I, I hope there's a bit more respect. When I see the refuse collectors and the recycling people now 
Um, I kind of find myself wanting to say thank you to them, actually. But I often don't because they look quite kind of burly and no nonsense and probably think I'm being some kind of <laughs> overly, overly kind of eager sort of middle class ponce or something to use that horrible word. Um, but I, 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 do, I, I kind of do feel that. And I, I think that carrying over that respect to the, the world of work would make a huge difference because actually I think that that makes a difference to people's quality of work as well. If you go to work in the morning and you leave at the end of the day, not feeling like you're you're valued or your work is valued or you're given respectful, then even if you're being paid well, it's 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 demoralising. If you go to work, you know, with your head held high and you leave with your head held high, then even if you're not earning a lot of from it, you can really take pride in it. And there are a lot plenty of people who do take pride already. Don't get me wrong, but I hope that more people can and that more people can show them the respect so that so that, that pride isn't in defiance of other people looking down on them, but is just mm-hmm. reflecting appreciation that people feel couldn't agree more and funnily enough our neighbor here is uh, gary he is a refuse collector and he is being treated like a hero now and um yesterday my partner saw that the we had to put the bins out and the bins people have put flowers on their bins so again it is a a shift whether it will last is another matter but it is a change of perception at the moment which maybe is one of the tiny silver linings to come out of this whole thing yeah Great. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating, Julian. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share it or rate it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. And if you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended lockdown reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week.